Amen. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for being here this morning. If you would turn to Luke chapter 16, we are going to get through the Gospel of Luke together uh, at some point. We took a long break while we were outside um, through the summer, and we've been back in it now for several weeks. We come to chapter 16 this morning, Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15, and we're going to see in these verses a parable that Jesus tells, like we've already looked at three in, in chapter 15, so we know these, how, the, how Jesus would tell these parables. The good thing about this parable is, is that Jesus also applies this parable. He, he tells the parable and then he gives the application, and that's very good for us because when we read the parable, I think we're going to see that this parable can be confusing. It kind of confuses us when we, when we read this parable. So thankfully... Jesus applies this parable for us. The problem is that when Jesus applies this parable, it moves from confusing to confrontational. It not only confuses us in the beginning, but when Jesus clears it up for us, it really confronts us. It confronted the Jews in that day, but I believe that it probably is going to confront us in the 21st century Western context even more. So let's look at this together. In Luke chapter 16, we'll read verses 1 through 15, and see the confusing parable and the confrontational application of that parable. So it says, he was, now he was also saying to the disciples, this is Luke chapter 16 and verse 1, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master's taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And here's where the confusing part comes in. Verse number eight. And his master praised The unrighteous manager, because he had acted shrewdly. And now begins the application and the confrontation. For the sons of this age, of this age, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Verse 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been Faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. 
Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in spite of me, you would speak. And we pray that in spite of us, we would be given ears to hear what you would have us to hear and take away from this text. Give us the will and the ability and the strength by your Spirit to apply it to our lives and live it out in a way that is clearly Christian. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at this confusing parable. First of all, in verse 1, we're introduced to the people. The people in this parable. It says, He was also saying to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. So we have a rich man, which is obvious. A rich man who apparently is kind of like a lender. He lends out money. We see that he, lend, he lended out wheat. He lended out oil. I'm sure he lended out many other things to people who were then in debt to him and charged some interest to that. So he was a, a rich man who also had a manager. He's so rich, he loans out so much money that he doesn't do it on his own. He delegates the managing of his funds to a manager. This is a steward of his resources. And this steward, in, in the Greek language, that word for, for manager here does not convey a slave that he is purchased to manage his funds. This is someone that he has actually hired. This is a free man who he's hired to manage his funds. This, this manager would be someone who had very high social status in the community. He would be someone who was well-respected in the community. He was someone who had much responsibility and he would be trusted because he would have the right to act on behalf of his master. He could sign the documents in place of his master. This manager, however, is a bad steward. He's wasteful. He's deceitful. He's conniving. He's thieving. He's throwing away his master's resources. He's totally irresponsible. And here are the people. We've got the master and we've got the manager. We've got the rich man and we have the steward, which leads us to the predicament. In the second part of verse 1 through verse 3, it says there was a rich man who had a manager. This manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He's accused here of wasting the master's resources, and he is in turn fired. When the master says, or when the rich man says, give an accounting of your management, this is not an, invis an investigation being called to save this man's job. He's not saying, bring me your numbers, and we're going to have an audit, and we're going to determine if you're being faithful to me, or if you are being unwise with my funding. No, this is a turn in your numbers kind of thing. Turn in your office key, turn in your computer, turn in all of your files, clean out your desk, bring me a final accounting of my possessions because you can no longer be my manager. That's what he says. This puts the manager in a predicament. In verse 3, the manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. What shall I do? He's, he steps back and he thinks, okay, now I'm in a predicament. What do I do? Well, I, there's a lot of digging jobs out there, but my hands are too delicate for digging. 
there's the potential of begging at the temple, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of high society here. I've, I'm someone of high social status, and I'm way too ashamed to beg. He's scratching his head. He's looking ahead. He doesn't have much hope about what he can do. He doesn't have many opportunities out there. I mean, after all, he's not going to go apply for another management position because when they call the rich man, when they call his master, he's not going to get a good reference there. So he comes up with a plan. In verses 4 through 7, he says, I know what I shall do so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. Now, here's, here's his plan. He's coming up with a plan in order to do a good favor for, for people so that they will in turn do a good favor for him. In this culture, in this context, if you did something for someone, that person would reciprocate. They would be obligated in this honor-shame culture to do something for you. So if you threw a banquet, the people that you threw a banquet for would then turn around and soon you would be invited to multiple banquets. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme, right? You know, you, you, you do this little call-out thing and you get... More people calling you and giving to you and doing for you. And so, so I'm going to do a banquet, and then I'm going to get to go to a lot of banquets. I'm going to give something to someone, and I'm going to get a lot of stuff in return. So he begins to connive and put together this plan. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a great favor for all of these people so that when I get fired, rather than file for unemployment, I can just kind of loaf around from house to house and eat their food and live from here on out. Verse 5, he summoned each one of his master's debtors. He began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. He said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write down 80. You may not understand what's happening here. Here's what's happening. The manager is calling in all of his master's debtors. We have an example of two. Someone who borrowed some oil, someone who owed some wheat. But it says that he called in all of his master's debtors. We don't have a list of them all. We don't know how many there were, but we know that he had several debtors, multiple debtors. He calls them in, and we have an example of what he's doing. He said, how much is it? Bring in your contract. Bring in your paperwork. How much do you owe in order to be free and clear of this debt? Well, I owe 100 measures of wheat. Okay, well, let's rewrite this contract where you only owe 80 measures of wheat. Deal. How much do you owe? Well, I owe 100 measures of oil. Well, I'll tell you what, sit down and let's rework this contract and let's make it 50. And these people do this because he's the manager. It's like if interest rates on home loans went through the roof and then one day your loan officer called and said, hey, I want you to come in. I've got a ridiculously low interest rate. We can refinance your home. You go in. You don't call in the police. You don't do an investigation. You say, where do I sign? It's going to bring my mortgage way down. I'm going to pay it off sooner. Let me sign on the dotted line. That's what he's doing to these people. He brings in all of these debtors. He reworks the contract so that they get the deal of a lifetime. And honestly, they probably don't care if it's honest or dishonest. They get the title clean and clear when they walk away. They are free. They're free. And in their eyes, this manager is amazing. He has, he has been over backwards for them. He's done such a good thing for them and his plans ingenious because now they're indebted to him you remember that time you owed a hundred measures of oil and i cut your bill in half i need somewhere to stay for the next few months you remember that time you had a hundred measures of wheat and i cut your bill down to 80 i need somewhere to stay i need somewhere 
to work. I need somewhere to eat. And on down the list, he can go. And since they have this great obligation to him, because of his great generosity, they all owe him, and he's going to claim in, he's going to cash in on this when he has to turn in all of his files. And then we see the confusing part of this parable in verse 8, the praise of the master. His master, in verse 8, praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. Is this not confusing? Which one of you, if you had a manager to pull this kind of deal on you, would not call the authorities for embezzlement? And instead, this master praises him. He praises the unrighteous steward not for being wasteful, not for being irresponsible, not for being a thief. He praised him because he acted shrewdly. He found an opportunity. He found a loophole. He found a way, and he took advantage of it, and he praised him for his shrewdness. And that's confusing to us. It's confusing to me. What are you talking about, Jesus? It seems like you're kind of setting us up to be dishonest. Which leads to the point. Some of you are thinking, man, this sermon's going by so fast. We're just about to put it in granny gear, okay? So just, you're thinking, we're going to get to lunch first today. Just hold on. We've got to get to the point. And it's confrontational. It's really confrontational. Now, don't miss the point here. Please, hear me out. The point is not connive, deceive, embezzle to get ahead in life. And when you stand before the master on judgment day, he's going to say, well done. You stored it up. You saved a lot. You invested a lot. You made a lot. Yeah, you, you twisted the truth a little. Yeah, you, you told some stories a little. You sold some poor products. You, you embezzled a little here and there. You were deceitful. You were dishonest. But man, you really racked up some good dough. Good job. That's not the point of this parable. So some of you people may go out of here If you go out of here and you think, well, the preacher said, do what you got to do to make a lot of money, you have missed it. Jesus said, do whatever you got to do to pad your pockets and take care of yourself and look out for number one. That is not the point of the parable. Jesus goes on to give us the point of the parable, and here's where it gets confrontational, and we're just going to list them off one by one. Here's point number one. Saints should be as shrewd for eternity as sinners are for the temporal. Latter part of verse 8, Jesus says, for the sons of this age, He means the sons of this age, the people, these temporal-minded people, these worldly people, these earthly people, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind, than the sons of light. Sinners are more shrewd than saints. The sons of this age have always been concerned about their worldly, temporal, earthly future, because that is all they have, and that's all they desire. You think about this. If we, people who claim to be the sons of light... People who claim to be heading for heaven and an eternity with Christ. If we made plans for eternity, like we make plans for the earthly, we would be dangerous. If if we invested in eternity, 
Like we invest in the earthly and thought about those investments with as much energy and effort, we would be dangerous. If we worked as hard for eternity as we do for the fleeting pleasures of this life and for the earthly, we would be dangerous. You think about the energy, the effort, the time, the investment, the strategy that Donald Trump used to buy up real estate and make tons of money. You think about all of the energy and time and effort that took. And now think about if we invested that same kind of time, energy, and investment, and effort in real estate in eternity, and wealth in eternity, wow, what would we look like? I mean, Jesus is just calling a spade a spade here. He says, you know, look around at all these earthly people, how, how much energy and effort and time and investment they put in making a dollar. And here we are, sons of light. How much energy do we put in storing up heavenly treasure? Point number two. Eternal investments last for eternity. Whereas temporal investments only last for time. Listen to verse 9. I say to you, Make friend for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So, so take the money, this worldly currency, make yourself friends with your worldly currency so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now what in the world is he talking about here? Well, just think about how often we hear over and over again, Prepare for your future. Prepare for your future. I mean, we have entire reality TV shows on prepping, homesteading, preparing for the future, getting ready for the zombie apocalypse. We got entire Bible studies, not, not even worldly things, but Bible studies on building up that nest egg, build up that retirement, that 401k. Invest your unrighteous wealth this is what the world says. This is what most, most of our churches even echo, unfortunately. Invest this worldly mammon in worldly comforts because, you know, you're going to retire one day. John MacArthur said, maybe you enjoy it, your retirement. Maybe you enjoy it for five years. And he's 80, I think, at this point, so he can say this. Maybe you enjoy it for five years and then you hit 70. And you can't see like you could see. And you can't hear like you could hear. And you can't taste anything. And who cares? <laughs> Maybe you could buy the car of your dreams, but they take your license away. Now let's think about that. We put all this energy taking our unrighteous mammon to invest and store up so that we can get more unrighteous mammon and coast our final days into eternity. It reminds me of John Piper's seashell story. I know I've read it before. I'll read it again. 
He says, three weeks ago, he's preaching at Passion. He says, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80. Single all her life, she poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached. The poor and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes give way. Over the cliff they go and they're gone. Killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy, tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. So Jesus is saying we can take our unrighteous mammon and we can store it up so that we can coast into eternity on our unrighteous mammon, or we can take that unrighteous mammon and we can store it up. We can buy for ourselves friends. We can buy for ourselves friends in eternity so that when we step into eternity, we are welcomed into their homes. So, so here's, here's Bob who doesn't know Christ and I've invested my funding in a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary who engages and encounters Bob and he's born again and he dies and he goes to heaven. And when I get to heaven, I have no clue that Bob's even there because of a dollar that I gave. But there's Bob to welcome me. What if we worked as hard to invest in that eternal reward and that eternal welcome as we do our earthly retirement? Listen to Jesus. Please listen to Jesus, okay? I know Dave Ramsey's big news, but listen to Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 through 20. We need to grapple with this. I don't have the answers. I'm just throwing the grenade and running. And we need to, but we need to grapple with this grenade for a moment. And here's what Jesus Christ, our Master and our Lord, says to us. Do not. Anybody confused yet? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not lay up treasures For yourselves on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves cannot break in and steal. This is Jesus. I remember one time I was at a church and prior to my arrival they borrowed a million dollars. The interim pastor had led them to borrow a million dollars, and just for future reference, 
you ever have an interim pastor who tries to lead you to borrow a million dollars, just, just hold off on that. <laughs> so I come in, and we've got this debt paid down to 800000 now. And I remember this man sitting across from me in 2008 when the market took a turn, mentally distraught. And he told me in passing, I lost more than $800,000. Here he had worked, here he had stored it up, and moth, and rust, and thieves break in and steal. And the stock market plummets, and he loses in one day enough to have paid off our entire debt. What do, you, what do you think, if he could go back, what do you think the day before, what do you think he'd have done with that $800,000? Well, I'm just going to take my chances. If he could go back to the day before the markets crashed, he would have taken out his checkbook and with a smile on his face, he would have written a check and paid that debt off, I bet you. Or done something with it. But he lost it. We've got to make sense of, of Jesus is telling us the exact opposite over and over and over in the Bible that our American mindset tells us. And we cannot conform Jesus to our American mindset. We have to conform our American mindset to Jesus. Jesus comes in bringing a brand new culture. It doesn't matter if it's America, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, Uganda, France, doesn't matter. When Jesus shows up, he has a culture of his own. And we have to conform to that culture. And we don't need to just read Matthew 6 and say, well, that was for those poor, poor Jews who didn't really have much to store up. I've got six Gs. Or seven. And I've got a retirement I'm planning for. And you know, I plan to use my retirement for Jesus. I do. Listen. You can't take it with you when you go. We all know that. But you can invest it where you're going and cash it in there. That's, the, that's what Jesus is saying. Use that unrighteous mammon to make for your friends and eternity. So they'll, dwell, they'll welcome you into the eternal dwellings. You can't take it with you when you go, but you can invest it where you're going and cash it in when you get there. So we've got saints should be as shrewd for eternity as sinners are for the temporal. Eternal investments last for eternity, whereas temporal investments only last for time. Thirdly, if we're not faithful with material resources, we cannot claim or expect faithfulness with spiritual resources. Verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is, also, is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? If we're not faithful with material resources, we cannot claim or expect faithfulness with spiritual resources. This is a stewardship. You don't even own what you think you own. Well, I've got my own house. I've got my own car. I've got my own 401k. I've got my own job. I've got my own paycheck. Who's the preacher to tell me anything to do with any of that? It's mine. No, it's not. Not if you're a Christian. Or even if you're not a Christian. Newsflash. If you're lost an atheist and hate God, yes, atheists hate God. They're not really atheists. They hate God. You can be an atheist and hate God. 
and what you have is not your own. Haggai 2.8 says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Everything you have is the Lord's. And as Christians, everything you have is a stewardship. Not just the money you give to God, not just your tithe that you put in the offering plate. Everything you have belongs to God and it is all to be used for His glory. God gives us material things, financial things. They are blessings, can be blessings from His hand. We are stewards of that and we prove our faithfulness to God by how we steward those resources. Here's something that has blown my mind my entire ministry. I will have people who don't put a dime in the offering plate. They can't even bring themselves to put in a tithe. And yet they say that they are born again and they have trusted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ to give them eternal life. Let me ask you what is more valuable. What is more valuable? What is more critical? Your soul that will live for eternity or a portion of your paycheck? And you try to make me believe that you can trust Jesus with your soul that will live forever and ever and ever and you can't trust Him with a dollar bill that's here today and gone tomorrow? Do you not see the conflict there? If you can't trust God with your money, how can you trust Him with your soul? It makes no sense. And Jesus is saying, if you are sinful in the use of your money, who's going to entrust you true eternal riches? The good news, or the bad news, however you want to look at this, is Jesus continues this discussion next Sunday in the latter part of chapter 16. Saints, we should be as shrewd for eternity as sinners are for the temporal. Eternal investments Remind ourselves, eternal investments last for eternity, whereas temporal investments only last for time. If we're not faithful with material resources, we cannot claim or expect faithfulness with spiritual resources. Number four of six. You will not, you will serve God or you will serve money, but you will not and cannot serve both. You will serve God or you will serve money, but you cannot and will not serve both. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. No servant. None of us are that good. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus isn't speaking against wealth. There were some wealthy people in the early church... Jesus isn't speaking against wealth. Jesus is speaking against serving wealth. And you can't serve God and you can't serve wealth. A.W. Pink wrote this. These two, wealth and God, these two are diametrically opposed, God and money. One commands you to walk by faith. The other, to walk by sight. One, to be humble. The other, to be proud. One to set your affection on things above, the other to set them on the things that are on the earth. One to look at the things that are unseen and eternal, the other to look at the things that are seen and temporal. One to have your conversation in heaven, 
the other to cleave to the dust. One to be careful for nothing, the other to be all anxiety. One to be content with such things as you have, the other to enlarge your desires. One to be ready to distribute, the other to withhold. One to look at the things of others, the other to look at only one's own things. One to seek happiness in the Creator, the other to seek happiness in the creature. Is it not plain, he says, you cannot serve two masters. You will serve God or you will serve money, but you will not and cannot serve both. Number five, your response to this message will reflect your heart. Look in verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were what? Lovers of money. We're listening to all these things and we're scoffing at him. Your response to this message will reflect your heart. Lovers of money don't like this kind of talk. So let's do a quiz. I know you're Baptist, but we need to participate in this quiz, okay? If you this morning would confess, I am a lover of money. Just raise your hand. Just confess it before your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, nobody, nobody's confessing it. Oh, I see a couple. Amen for your honesty. Okay? Let's say, okay, forget, let's just drop that question. No more lover of money. How many of you would say, you know what? I wouldn't mind being rich. I kind of would like to be rich. Raise your hand. Come on. Raise them high. Don't be ashamed if you say, I kind of like to be rich. All right, y'all look around. Look around. Why y'all acting all ashamed? Do you, you feel like I'm setting you up? <laughs> Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 and 10. Just leave that verse up there. Because I want you to see something here, okay? To reveal our hearts. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can ta- cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. This is Paul talking, not us. Amen. How many of you would be content with food and covering? None of us. Hardly, maybe. But, verse 9, those who want to get rich. Now, you, most of you that were honest, some of you lied through your teeth, and you should repent for that. And we, we looked around, we saw the hands raised. And we know they desire to be rich, and we saw the hands that weren't raised, and we know you're a liar. (laughs) So both ways, we're in trouble. But those who want to get rich, and a lot of us, most of us admitted, yes, I would like to be rich. We want to be rich. Shall fall into temptation and a snare, many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And now, look at what he says next in verse 10. For, now that word for... That word for begins the sentence. And that word for is tied back to what he just said. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation for the love of money. We like that one, don't we? The love of money. It's not money. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. And he just said that the definition of the love of money is to desire to be rich. 
Those who desire to be rich fall into all kinds of temptation. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If you did not raise your hand that you love money, but you did raise your hand that you desire to be rich, you just confess in the eyes of Paul and the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write this, and God, that you do indeed love money, and we have a problem here. And those of us who didn't raise our hands were probably lying, and we also have two problems here. One, that we still love money, and two, that we lied about it. And this is a good place to say, aren't we thankful that Jesus took all of our sin upon himself? I mean, we look at those pagans overseas who have come to faith and hang on to something that we just think is horrible. And we don't look in the mirror and realize that we're hanging on to something that's just as horrible and we all need Jesus. Because we're a room full of liars and or lovers of money. We're a room full of liars and lovers of money and we need Jesus as much, if not more, than a lot of the people who aren't even in this room this morning. We all need Jesus. If you want to, the point of that, your response to this message will reflect your heart. If you, want to, if you want to pour your money into this world and plow for your fortune here and pad your future here, if you want to do that, then you're not going to like sermons like this. You're going to scoff at sermons like this. So what's your response this morning, even as a lover of money, what is your response this morning? That response will reflect your heart. And here's the last one. What impresses men on earth is detestable to God in heaven. Think about that. We go look at a house and we think partially how this is going to fit our family and partially what other people are going to think of it. We go look at a car and we think partially of how much it's going to cost us, how is it going to fit my needs, and then a big portion, what are other people going to think of this ride? We buy clothes, especially you young people who haven't got over yourself yet and realize you're not as cool as you think you are. What are other people going to think of these shoes or these clothes? It's really a blessing to be colorblind. It's like, I don't even know what I look like half the time. This kind of takes away your care button. I don't, it all looks the same. What impresses men on earth is detestable to God in heaven. Listen to how Jesus wraps up this little segment in verse number 15. He said to them, You're those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men, that which men hold in high regard, is detestable in the sight of God. God, help us to learn to love your smile, even if everybody else around us is scoffing at us. And God, help us to fear your frown, Even if all the world smiles upon us and sings our praises, may we seek to please Him. No, 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 no. Stop. I said may we seek to please Him, didn't I? May we seek Him. May we just seek Him. Problem solved. Problem solved. As a Hymn writer said, Be thou my vision. 
O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou, my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence, Thy presence, my light. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart. First in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, Thou art. Is He your treasure? Is He your greatest treasure? Because listen, if Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure, if He's your vision, if He's your heart, every single thing in your life, from your wallet to what you watch, where you invest and what you listen to, and what you do and what you don't do and everything in between. If Jesus Christ becomes your greatest treasure and He is your vision, every single thing will fall right into place between you and Him. Everything else will find its place. So is He your treasure this morning? Listen, Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven, came to this earth, To live the life God requires us to live. And we've already heard we haven't done too well, right? Because some of us lied and most of us said we love money here this morning. That's just one little thing. But Jesus came and He checked that box for us. He just checked that one off for us. And then He took that and He went to the cross. There on the cross, that sin, your sin, my sin, was judged in Jesus on the cross in full. And he was buried, and he rose so that you this morning could turn away from your sin and your affections for this world and your attitudes and your old actions and your own self-righteousness, and you can turn to God through faith in what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus has paid for you, and you can have perfect peace with God, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. Not because of what you have done or not done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. You can have peace with God and a clean slate here this morning. Make Him your greatest treasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace, Your mercy, Your love. We thank You for... Your word, even when it is confusing, even when it is confrontational, and when it confronts us in our sin that we so often overlook and sweep under the rug, our sin that we often take as a point of pride and dignity, God, help us to grapple with these things, not just in word only, but also in deed. Help us to make you our greatest treasure and our vision. God, if there's a person in this place who doesn't know you, if there's a person in this place who has never truly been transformed by the power of your gospel message, I pray that you would grant them repentance, that you would grant them faith, and you would stir their hearts 
to respond to this message by telling someone that they trust or by grabbing one of these ministers before they leave this place. And God, as we've all seen our need for repentance this morning, I pray that you would help us to do just that even now as you call us to do it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.